word in hand, turning with me to the book of Acts, chapter 5, where today we'll be reading and studying the end of the apostles' trial before the Sanhedrin. This is going to be Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 33 through 42. Acts chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. Hear now the word of God. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, them being the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this, plan is, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the, for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. In our text this morning, we are coming to the conclusion of the trial of the apostles. This is the second one that we've seen. And in the middle of it, you see something that might be a bit surprising to you. Everybody seems to have been against the apostles up to this point. But now a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel stands up and he says something, we'll say not exactly condemning of the apostles, which no, no doubt would have been an immense pressure release from the apostles. He stands up and he gives the council of the Sanhedrin a bit of a, a history lesson. These two men, Thudius and, and Judas, in the past had been Messiah types, had stood up, had fought against the Roman Empire, but eventually they all came to nothing. And so he gives them a little bit of advice. He says, if these men are working the plans and the devices of man, it will fall just like every one of them has before. But, but if this is from God, then it will succeed. And so all we have to do is be patient, sit around and wait. This advice to wait and see seemed good to the council. So they decided to wait. But was Gamaliel's advice actually true? Well, the answer is a little yes and a little no. <clears throat> When Gamaliel says, if this plan is the undertaking of men, then it shall fail, he is flat out wrong. It is, of course, true in the final analysis that the things of man will eventually come to nothing and given enough time will even fall out of memory. 
But nonetheless, we can think of many different examples of falsehoods, the devices of men actually seeing great success, even in false teaching. Islam is a false teaching. Has it been successful? Yes, there are billions of Muslims around the world. Mormonism, even though it's more recent, has still had a great deal of success. And then even when it comes to morality, ancient evils of the past are now continued on as being modern sensibilities. And so, of course, the things of men can continue on for very, very long periods of time. But when Gamaliel said, if this plan is of God, then you will not be able to overthrow it, that was certainly true. The promises and the plans of God never, ever, ever fail. His promises will never cease. They will all return to him fulfilled in its entirety. That is true. But even when Gamaliel is right in what he says, I do wonder if he is right in what he means. A lot of us, when we think about the devices of God, becoming successful and prosperous. I wonder if what he means and what we mean is that if we are on God's side, then everything will go well for us. That everything that we touch will turn to gold and everything will prosper in our hands. Many of us think this way. Not even just Christians, but many unbelievers as well. I remember seeing this, a video not long ago, of a young lady who was absolutely infuriated when a Christian came to her and said, if you give your heart and your all to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only will things maybe stay the same, things might get worse. It might become harder for you. This didn't make any sense to her. Why would you offer something to me? Why would you offer someone to me, the lordship of someone, of the lordship of someone to me, if it's just going to make my life worse? I'm going to have to pick up my cross and follow him. Why would I come to someone who beckons me to come and to die? This doesn't make sense to the world. And I wonder if Gamaliel at the sa- uh, had the same idea in mind when he gives his advice to the council of the Sanhedrin, that if the apostles were from God, that all would go well for him. Martin Luther had a title for people who think of, think of the life and think of God in this way. He calls them theologians of glory. Now that doesn't sound very bad, but let me explain to you what he means. The theologian of glory for Martin Luther was the one who saw the glory of God as being just an, a greater example of human glory. These theologians are the ones who build their theology on the basis of what God is supposed to be like according to human standards. Let me give you an example that church historian Carl Truman gives with the example of power. When theologians of glory think of the power of God, they just take the idea of human power and they multiply it by infinity. But that is not the power of God as it is displayed in the apostles and as it is displayed in the New Testament. In the New Testament and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God is veiled in weakness. It is, it is veiled in Jesus Christ suffering and dying. That is the power of God unto salvation. And this is good. 
As I said in the prayer, it does the theologian no good to peer into the throne room of God without first going through the cross. It is as I read somewhere the other day, no one can look into the sun, which is 92 million miles away, without having their eyes burned out. And yet we believe that we can just casually waltz into the glory of the creator of the sun and leave untouched. This is illogical. This is a vast misunderstanding of the glory of God. We dare not seek the glory of God by any means other than the suffering of Jesus Christ, him crucified. For Luther and the apostles as well, sinners must seek out the glory of God in another place. We must seek the face of God in the glory of the cross. Listen to how Luther puts it. He says, he deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the things of God seen through suffering and the cross. What Luther is saying is deeply profound and biblical. It is only through the lenses of the cross of Christ and his suffering there that a sinner could ever hope to peer behind the veil and perceive the unimaginable glory of a holy, holy, holy God and then live to tell the tale. It is only through the cross that we do this. But we can go even further than this. By seeing the glory of God in the cross of Christ, we can also see the blessings of God in our own crosses and in our own sufferings. It's like Paul has said in various texts. I'll, I'll focus in on Colossians 1.24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. He's not saying there that there's something off about Jesus' suffering. No, no, no. What he is saying is, even though Christ is ascended into heaven, is away from suffering, his body, the church, is still here in this world and is still suffering. Christ is still suffering because his people are still suffering. But this does not make sense to the minds of the theologians of glory, like Gamaliel. They say suffering is a lamentable thing. How can you find glory in suffering? But to the apostles who gloried in the cross of Christ, suffering was a call to rejoice. Look with me in verses 40 and 41. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. They rejoiced in suffering. They counted dishonor to be honor. It doesn't make sense to the world. It's turned upside down. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, he says something to a group of Christians in Turkey who are enduring a great amount of persecution, and they're trying to make sense of it. Listen to what Peter says here. And I can't help but think when he says this to the Turkish Christians, that he's thinking of what is going on in Acts chapter 5. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. What they're saying is, you may not have been around to see Jesus die on the cross, but when you suffer, when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, when you are persecuted, 
You are beholding the glory of the suffering of Christ. You are beholding the glory of the cross of Christ. Peter is saying that we should rejoice in present sufferings because there we share in the sufferings of Christ. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, when you are belittled for your belief, when you are thought to be less than nothing by this world, you are never more like Christ. You bear his image because he was hated and despised, and yet it was glorious in the sight of his Father, and it was glorious in the sight of the apostles. Let me remind you of what Jesus says repeatedly in the Gospel of John. The hour of my glorification is growing near. You know what he's talking about there? The hour of his glorification? It's his being lifted up on the cross, dying, bruised, flesh torn open by whips. That was the hour of his glorification. When we suffer, we partake in that glory. So this morning, I want to make sure that you understand what Peter and Paul and Luther and the apostles are saying. If we are going to become like the apostles and rejoice in suffering, we need to be able to see what the apostles saw. And they saw two things. First of all, they saw the glory of God in the suffering of Christ. And secondly, they saw the cross of Christ reflected in their own crosses. Let me repeat that again. They saw the glory of God in the suffering of Christ, and they saw the cross of Christ in their own crosses. Let's begin by seeing the glory of God in the suffering of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Here, he is writing this letter to what is essentially the ancient equivalent to modern-day Las Vegas. This church is... This church is full of sin, it's full of iniquity, and they love it. It's not just in the world outside of it, it's in the church itself. There's some crazy stuff going on in the Corinthian church. But notice how he begins this letter, and how upside down everything is. I, I think it kind of speaks for itself. Let me just read it for us. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Notice how backwards Paul's words are. He says that the Christian is saved by way of folly, foolishness. And though it is not folly to God, it is certainly folly to this world. He gives two examples. The Jews, they seek signs and mighty works, but we preach Christ crucified. The Jews have what you would call a retributive uh, system of morality. It basically goes like this. You do good, what do you get in return? Good. You do bad, what do you get in return? Bad. 
This is how it works. And this is how many of us think today. But the apostles preached the good news of the righteous one of God becoming a curse for the sake of the unrighteous. That doesn't make sense. That is a stumbling block. This was a stumbling block to those Jews who were theologians of glory, who could not fathom the glory of God existing in any place other than the throne room of heaven or in miracles or mighty works. But we have this gospel, God the Son leaving the throne of heaven and taking his throne upon the throne of the cross, suffering and dying in the hour of his glorification, a stumbling block to the Jews. But then you also have the Greeks who sought wisdom and logic. The Greek world would look upon the apostles rejoicing that they had had the honor they had been deemed worthy of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and they would have laughed. No sane person rejoices in suffering. Sane people rejoice in good things, pleasure. Instead, they will despise and run away from things that hurt and the sufferings of this world. But this is what unbelief sees. Faith sees something very different than this. Faith sees in our own sufferings the marks of Christ. The scars left by Christian suffering are nothing more than the badges of our adoption into sonship. For just as the children will share in the likeness of their parents, so must the Christian, every Christian, share in the likeness of his Christ. And our Christ was the one who was crucified the one who is humiliated and marred beyond all human semblance. And I dare any Christian to say that there is no glory in the humiliation of Christ. For as heavy as our, crisis, our, as, as our crosses might be, they do not contain even an ounce of the wrath of God. That belonged to the cross of Christ alone. Whatever burden you bear, it contains no wrath it does not contain the wrath of God. It contains his grace. It is making you look more like his son. And ponder with me for a moment how we don't just see the glory of God in our salvation as we peer upon the cross, but how we see all of the perfections of God reflected in the cross of Christ and how upside down it is. We see the righteousness of God in his punishing the righteous son of God, Jesus Christ. We see the mercy of God in his punishing the sinless Christ in the place of sinners. We see the reign of God through the service of the Son of God as he comes off of his throne, coming in the, in the vision of a servant, and then laying his life down for his citizens. Kings of this world don't do that. Kings send out soldiers to die for them. But our king does not reign in that way. He reigns through his death. And we see the omnipotent power of God through the weakness of Christ as he begged even for a drop of sour wine as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The omnipotent power of God and the forsaken Son of God. Yes, the apostles saw the glory of Christ in his transfiguration and in his ascension into heaven, but it was his glory that they saw in his death that they shared most urgently with the world. It is Christ crucified. It is that foolishness. It's that folly. 
that saves the people of God. Do we see the same glory? Do we see glory in Christ's suffering and dying? We have to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the treasure, the gold of the gospel, is not carried around in treasure chests. It's carried around in worthless jars of clay. The world sees it and they think nothing of it. The world, like the Jews, they want a sign, they want a miracle, they want a mighty work. I have no mighty work to offer you. I can perform no miracle in your presence. This is what I have. Christ crucified. I have the Son of God bleeding, wounded, pouring out his soul upon the cross. That is what I have. Do you see the glory in it? The apostles did. And they rejoiced to see that same glory reflected in their own sufferings. And this is our second and last part. The apostles saw the cross of Christ reflected in their own sufferings. I was reading a Puritan prayer in my devotionals the other day. <clears throat> Listen to what this anonymous, this book of prayers, they don't have any names attached to them, so I have to keep saying anonymous. I don't know who it is. I wish I did. But this is what he says. It's a prayer of sanctification, wanting to look more like Christ. This is what he says. He says, Heavenly Father, save me entirely from sin, not just from the guilt of it, but also from the practice of it. I know I am righteous through the righteousness of another, but I pant and pine after a likeness to thyself. Boy, that's a great prayer for sanctification. First of all, it it bows the knee before the grace of God and says, I am righteous before you because of the imputed alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. But it also expresses a longing, a desire to be more like Christ in his obedience. But let me ask a question now. What was the most profound place of Christ's obedience? Where do we see his obedience to the uttermost? Was it not through his suffering and through his dying? Was it not through him becoming obedient unto the point of death? Was it not his dying that that caused God to bestow upon him a name that is above every other name? Just listen to the song of the angels and the elders and the living creatures in Revelation 5. Worthy are you, O Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. By your blood you were slain. The angels in heaven are right now declaring the glories of the Lamb because he was slaughtered. That was the obedience by which he purchased his glory in the name above every other name. It was the obedience of Christ the Lamb and his dying that caused him to be worthy to take the scroll and to open them and to save all of the people of God. You see, when we pray pray to be sanctified and that we might look more like Christ, do we know what we are asking for? Do we know that we are asking for more than just the enabling of the Holy Spirit to cause us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love God with all of our being? Do we know that we are asking to be conformed to the image of the one who loved his neighbor and loved God even unto the point of death, even death upon a cross? The prayer for sanctification is not just praying that I might be a good little boy or a good little girl is to pray that I might take on the image 
of the Son of God dying and bleeding and suffering. It is that I might it is praying that I might pick up my own cross and that I might look more like him. As it has been said before, a man never looked more like Christ than in the moment that he is placed under the weight of a cross. To the world, this is a strange thing to pray for, but it's an even stranger thing to rejoice in. But that is exactly what you see the apostles doing. They are beaten black and blue, but they count it all joy because their Lord was beaten and crucified for, the, for their salvations, for the forgiveness of their sins. For the apostles, their bruises were the certificate of their adoption into the family of God. Their scars were the marks of their sanctification, their conformity into the image of Christ. Their own suffering ministered Christ to them. It was a pastor, it was a preacher proclaiming the glories of the gospel. But it is important to note that for the apostles, their suffering is not where their journey ended. Let me read for you again what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That is the hope that is placed in front of us. But that is exactly where it is. It is in front of us. It is not something that we possess here and now. Listen to how R.C. Sproul speaks of it. There is no higher honor or glory for a human being to receive on this earth than of partaking in the humiliation of Christ. For that is the only part of his glory he will share with us in this world. In heaven, we will possess the glory that he has right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father. But right here and right now, for Christ to share his glory with you is for him to share scars, gashes, wounds, persecution, cancer, sickness, death, his humiliation. Now that causes us to bow low, but I want you to make sure that you see the encouragement and the comfort in this. It is the duty of every Christian to bear the cross of persecution and suffering. Many will call you brother and sister because of your confession and because of your faith, but there will be many, many among whom you love, who will despise and reject you because of it, and it will cause you to suffer. But know this, that puts you into the company of the Son of God who bore your sins in his suffering. And it also ministers an eternal truth to anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You are not just right here and right now a son of God. You are now and forever a son of God. It's as a, another anonymous Puritan has said, God has only one son who is without sin, but he has no sons who are without suffering. You are never, ever alone and never, ever apart from the grace of God in any of your sufferings. I can't change that. The world cannot change that. A doctor's visit cannot change that. A world that hates you cannot change that. It is of God, and his purposes stand forever. Our Heavenly Father, we love 
and cherish you because of the immense grace that you have shown us. We thank you that not even, not, not even the world and all of its power and all of its malice can snatch us from the hands of this good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. And so, Father, I pray that we would all be encouraged by this knowledge, that through it you would conform us into the image of your Son, not by taking us out of suffering, but by giving us grace in suffering. Would you do this for the sake of Jesus? May we look more like him, honestly and surely. In Jesus' name, amen.